All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Friday morning show for you. The show absolutely packed for you once again today. We start off with the leader of the opposition, Andrew Wilkinson. He's the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. Lots to cover with him this morning, so let's go right to him. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Let me ask you real quickly about back to school. This is the uh, first week with kids back in class, and the Liberals been very critical of this back to school plan. But I suggest to you that it's um, it's so far so good. I got a, I got a son in grade ten. He's had a good return to school this week. I've been hearing from lots of parents and teachers uh, the last couple of days who say, you know, it's looking okay. Lots of kids with masks on, and it's going all it's going well so far. Your thoughts? Well, we sure hope so, because our goal is to get our kids back into school and back in the educational plan. But let's be clear, the folks I talked to said that their child went to school yesterday for one hour, and today is off, and their second child is in today for one hour. So that's the earliest stages of return to school. We'll see how it works. And I think the concern that we have that we've heard in town halls from all over British Columbia and from teachers in abundance and from the Teachers Federation is why didn't the government over the past six months increase the capacity for online learning? Because think about it, Mike, you go to a high school with 1,200, 2,000 kids, there's an outbreak there, the school closes, kids all go home for two weeks, as do the teachers, what are they going to do? We should have set up online capacity whether it's full online or what is called hybrid with half in the class or half online, and this government completely dropped the ball and it, failed it seems, to do that. It seems to vary from district to district because I talked to some parents on the open line yesterday who said they were successfully able to get their kid into a, a distance learning program online and with assurance that they would be able to keep their spot in school when this, this whole thing is hopefully over. Uh, but I've heard from other parents in other districts who say that's not the case. Is, is, is it your concern that it doesn't seem to be consistent? Well, let's be clear. Our K-12 system is critically important in our society because it's the great equalizer, the big leveler. Everybody comes out with the same good quality qualification unless they live in a district that doesn't offer it this time around or unless the program's full, which we're hearing all over the province. There are big wait lists for what's known as Internet Distance Learning or IDL. So this is a problem, okay. and it was total lack of leadership on the part of the Ministry of so, Education. So, so what? They should have spent more money. They should have, have more distance first of all, learning. not cut the budget for uh, online learning by $12 million, which they did on May the 4th. That was a huge blunder. They should have said, okay, we're going to set up for our 600,000 K-12 students. We're going to go with, you pick one, Microsoft Teams or Skype or Zoom, and we're going to set up the programs. We've already got the curriculum from the IDL program. We're going to create the capacity centrally so that you can have uniform access throughout British Columbia to quality education online, and they did not do that. Just real quickly about your your first point there about kids were only back in class yesterday for one hour. Isn't that kind of situation normal on the first day back to class every year? I mean, they're they're never there for a full day. That's what we both said at the outset, Mike, that hopefully things will go smoothly. So far, they're ticking along, but, you know, we can't judge the success of the school system in the event of an outbreak or in the event of an inability to do uh, social distancing based on one hour. Do you think if there is an outbreak of COVID in a school that the government should disclose the where that school is and the name of that school? Well, people are asking a lot of questions these days. If you go to Google and type in UK COVID by postal code, you get it down to the individual postal code. And there's a more 
granular than ours are in Canada. They've got yeah. 65 million people divided up in the units, about 2,000 people. You get the whole data for your postal code. We don't have that. We have it by health authority. And so people are legitimately asking, what's going to happen if there's a child or a teacher ill in our school? Do we get any information or not? Well, what do you say? Should they disclose that? Well, it surprises me we haven't had more disclosure, and that's well, I'm, a question, I'm asking, I'm asking you what, I'm asking what your position is. Like, do you think they should disclose if there's a COVID outbreak in a school, the public should be told which school? Well, I think the counterpoint to that, Mike, is rumors are going to run rampant. You know what schools are like. If something happens in classroom 22, people in classroom 3 know it within an hour. So rather than having the rumor mill, it would make sense to have a degree of disclosure and a plan okay. to come with that disclosure. Okay, let me ask you about this other story that we saw in Victoria yesterday with, with the guy whose dad was visiting from the United States. Uh, he was here legally and his truck got defaced. And I, I saw you were outspoken on that on Twitter. Um, this is a guy who uh, his father came up from Texas. He self-isolated when he came into Canada. He is here legally. He is a Canadian and his car got absolutely trashed, windows broken. Have a listen to this. Jonathan Vidalin, this, this is the guy's son speaking to Linda Steele yesterday. He's been living in the States, and he um, came up basically to visit family. He wanted to meet his first grandchild. My wife and I just had a baby in May, um, and he just wanted to spend some time with us and enjoy the summer and get away from, uh, you know, the COVID situation in the States has been a lot worse than here. So he, you know, took the chance to, to come up here, which was totally 100% legal. He's totally allowed to be here. Your, your thoughts on that? poor guy you know i saw him on tv last night and he was so restrained i think you know for most of us we're either inclined to burst into tears or get really angry because there are 25 million people in texas the story goes from the Canadian government there are a million canadians in california and to just brand people and attack them because their license plate is just so fundamentally wrong it's really sad that that happened here and that this poor man has to now go through the headache of insurance claims and he's got to get new Texas license plates because they stole them. You know, good luck doing that from Victoria, B.C., Canada. So your heart has to go out to this you guy remember what, uh, and his family. You remember what Premier John Horgan said, uh, his advice to people whose cars are being targeted like this. Let me play it for you. Here's Horgan on advice to people with foreign license plates. With respect to those who uh, have uh, offshore plates and are feeling uh, harassed, I, I would suggest perhaps public transit. Uh, I would suggest that they get their plates changed. I would suggest they ride a bike. What do you think of that? Well, you know, put yourself in the position this guy's lost his job in the energy industry. He's a Canadian citizen. He legally crossed the border, followed all the rules. And that's the treatment he gets from vandals who wreck his car. And that's the treatment he gets from the Premier of British Columbia. It's just insulting. Okay, let me ask you, uh, speaking of the Premier of British Columbia, let, let's talk about his uh, continuing dropping hints of a, of a fall election, a snap election. Here's Horgan on that. The world we live in today is not the world of 2017, and uh, I know that British Columbians want me to focus on 2020 and beyond rather than looking backward uh, to a relationship I had with uh, the then leader of the Green Party and his colleagues, uh, and, and that's my focus, quite frankly. Okay, he's talking there about the governing deal he's got with the Green Party, saying, well, maybe the deal, suggesting maybe the deal is moot and void now and there could be an election. Your thoughts? Well, this is clearly John Horgan playing the cards for his own benefit. He sees himself in an advantageous position, wants to take advantage of it by screwing over his coalition partners, the Green Party. 
I mean, what kind of guy does that who's got a rampant epidemic going on in our community? There's no economic plan after six months of this. The school plan contains no significant online learning. And here's the guy who's talking about protecting his own bacon. This is not the appropriate way to govern during a crisis like this. Yeah, he has a power grab. Well, I think you've got to ask who wants an election. I've talked to people all over this province. I've been all over this province. And people are not looking for an election. They're looking for stability and some security because they've got huge tax bills coming due at the end of September, $7 billion owed by small business. They don't know how they're going to pay them. They're worried about schools. They're worried about their family. They're worried about people who are immune compromised. And here's John Horgan talking about trying to take advantage of it all. Okay, he started. It's a minority government, of course. He's got a a, a governing partnership with with the Green Party. He pointed out that the Green Party's leader, Andrew Weaver, uh, quit the Green Party. Does that make a difference? Well, the agreement's signed by all the NDP MLAs and all the Green MLAs, and it's an agreement between the Green Party and and the NDP. So if John Horgan thinks he can just screw people over and rip up deals for his own advantage in the middle of a pandemic, I got you got to question his values. Okay. If he called an election, would would he win? Like what would you, what would how would you fight an election? Are are you worried about losing? Well, we're finding it's really exciting because we've got superb candidates coming out of the woodwork voluntarily and saying they would like to run for us because they see this NDP government kind of adrift apart from Dr. Henry guiding them around by the nose. And they say, what's happening in schools? What's happening in the economy? There's no economic plan. We're worried about our future. And they say, these people coming forward to us saying, please let us run successfully the next election because there's a better way to do this. We can do better, Mike. I mean, we can do better in terms of schooling. We can do better in terms of stimulating this economy. We can do better in terms of getting training and retraining programs going. And we just see the NDP looking out for their own skin. All right, welcome back to my conversation with Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, talking about Premier John Horgan's continuing hints about a possible snap election here. He's looking at the polls. The NDP are way ahead. That's why he's thinking of doing it for sure. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Elizabeth calling from Kamloops. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi there. Um, I look forward to an election. Every single time there's one, I get out and vote. Every person can make a difference. So if you think the government is doing an amazing job, get out and vote for them, and they'll stay in power. Okay, if you, were, you don't, uh, yeah. vote for someone else. What about this pandemic going on, though? I think Doesn't they would matter? find a way to do mail-in ballots or oh, yeah. everybody put your mask on, social distance. If you really want to vote and you want to get out there, you'll do it. Okay, Andrew Wilkinson, Elections BC has already said they're looking at a mail-in voting system. Your thoughts? Well, Elizabeth is right. Voting is very important. We hope everybody gets out and does it who's entitled to do so. The question is the timing of a vote when it's up to John Horgan, basically, to go and visit the lieutenant governor and ask her for an election because it's needed. Is it needed now? Or is he just trying to pick a fight with his Green Party coalition friends so that they can blow it up and tank the Green Party and take advantage of it? Well, this government has won every single confidence vote in the legislature, including the last budget, which which passed unanimously. It doesn't appear like there's going to be a fall session of the legislature, maybe not. So, I mean, does that mean to you that there's no reason to call an election right now? 
Well, normally, as you know, in Canada, the uh, premier go or the prime minister goes to the Queen's representative and says, we need an election because it's time. And we've passed legislation saying the next election will be in October of 2021. And here's John Horgan saying, well, maybe I can take advantage of a pandemic and uh, screw over the Green Party. And I come back to this question, Mike. What are the values of this guy? Is he just in it for himself or is he looking out for British Columbians? Well, he's a politician. is right. There's he's a, a good he's a poli- time he's a poli- and a good place for an election, and this he's probably poli- isn't it. He's a politician looking at opinion polls with a 26-point lead over you. Yeah, but the last opinion poll had us two points apart. So, you know, you can't make public policy based on a single opinion poll that didn't even tell you how many people were undecided. So let's focus right. on what's good for British Columbians. Okay. Let's focus on what people are worried about. They're worried about a rapidly rising count of uh, pandemic COVID cases. They're worried about online schooling. They're worried about whether they're going to have a job by Thanksgiving. That's what people are worried about, not about John Horgan's future. Okay, Ron in Vancouver. Hi, Ron. Mike, hi. Uh, Mr. Wilkinson has said that the NDP has no plan for the economy. Well, that means Mr. Wilkinson must have one. I'd like to hear his uh, plan for the economy right now. Okay. And I'll hang up and listen. All right, Andrew Wilkinson. Well, we're going to be rolling out an exciting platform when the time comes, and I'm not sure that the moment for this is on CKNW at 9.30 in the morning on September 11th. Well, what would be job one? Give me, give me one priority. We've got to get our economy going again in a safe way. And safety means we make sure we're tackling the pandemic most effectively. We're satisfied with how it's been going so far in terms of the health management of this with Dr. Henry and the excellent performance of British Columbians so far in containing the pandemic. What we're worried about is 130,000 people who've lost their jobs in the tourism sector. We're worried about thousands of restaurants that may well close before Christmas. We're worried about small business that can't afford to pay a $7 billion tax bill at the end of this month. And that's what's going to require a plan to move British Columbia ahead. Okay, Laura in Vancouver. Hi, Laura. Take my call. I think we should have an election. Nothing personal, Mr. Wilkinson, but I think you and the Liberals will get in the way of any recovery of BC because you are argumentative, you're adversarial, and you don't work together. You voted for the budget. You voted for their budget. Andrew Wilkinson. Your thoughts? Well, that's interesting because the Times columnist editorial this morning calls us reasonable and calm, and perhaps we should be more combative. So, you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder. The job of the opposition is to hold the government to account. We said back in March when the pandemic first hit, our jobs to fight the virus, not each other, on the health issues, and we've stuck by that. In Alberta, there's a very nasty, bitter battle going on between the NDP and the Uh, United Conservatives about the conduct of the pandemic. We haven't done that. We've done that intentionally because it's in the best interest of British Columbians to be united in the fight against the virus. What we're very concerned about is the recovery from this pandemic and how people are going to have a job in 2021. And right now, the NDP have had six months to come up with a plan. The plans have been put out in Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan in June and July of this year, and there's still no sign of a plan from the NDP. And our job is to critique what they come up with. They're the ones with the $65 billion budget. They're the ones with 300,000 people on the payroll. And we have to be in a position to critique what they do and come up with a better plan during the election. Okay, we have more calls on the line, but sadly we're out of time, so we'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Anytime, Mike. Thanks very much. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Dr. Brian Day's landmark court challenge now against BC's Medicare laws. Brian Day is the head of the Canby Surgery Center, one of the largest private facilities of its kind in Canada. He launched a legal challenge more than a decade ago, arguing Canadians languishing on surgical waiting lists have a constitutional right to spend their own money on their own health care when wait times are too long in the private in the public system. Yesterday, he lost in court his constitutional challenge dismissed in the B.C. Supreme Court. He joins me now to talk about the case and where it goes from here. Dr. Day, thank you for coming on. Oh, you're welcome, Michael. Okay, what is your, this has been a long road for you uh, in your, your crusade for private uh, options for private, private health care. Your reaction to the court ruling yesterday? Well, very disappointed, obviously. It's an attack on the health of British Columbians. That's what it is. Um, It's essentially, and the court has ruled that BC residents should not have the same rights as under the Constitution, under the Charter that the Supreme Court of Canada granted to um, residents of Quebec. So we we don't have rights. We don't have the same rights that um, an Albertan has in our, or, or some of a visitor to our province has. So yesterday I operated on an Albertan, a young man from Alberta who'd wrecked his knee ligaments. Uh, that has always been allowed and always will be allowed. But if you're a British Columbia resident, you don't have those rights. It's kind of like in the former Soviet Union where, where uh, there were shops only the visitors could go to. The, the, the problem here is about patients. 40,000 patients on wait lists in British Columbia are waiting past the medically maximum acceptable time that the BC government itself has said they should wait, beyond which there's a risk of serious harm. That's a government definition, not mine. And so so we have um, what I consider a a very unfortunate decision for patients. We are, as I've probably said many times before, the only country on earth the only country on earth in which a citizen is denied the legal right to buy health insurance for their medical needs. We have, um, <clears throat> we have a, a, a system that is prejudicial against its own residents. And mo- most importantly, since we opened, in evidence in our court case was a fact that the judges seems to have ignored, that in Fraser Health, this was uncontested evidence. 308 patients in BC Fraser Health alone died in one year on the wait list. That's extrapolated to Canada. That's 18 a day. And since we launched our suit in 2009, that is 75,000 Canadians have died on a wait list. And you can quadruple or triple that now with COVID because modeling from Eastern Canada from McMaster University shows that wait times will be going up four to seven times. And this court has basically passed all of that by as irrelevant. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a very uh, disappointing decision. We yeah. are unique in the world. And, um, and um, I think it, has to, it will be, has to be appealed. And I hope that, um, that we're successful on appeal. And we take some comfort in the fact that, that at the lowest court in Quebec, the decision was also not given in, in favor of the Charlie um, decision. So it's, it's not something that we're that, we're, we're very upset and concerned, 
but we still have to look forward, and, and okay. Canadians have a, are going to die if we don't fix this. Okay, speaking of Dr. Brian Day, Canby Surgery Centre, about his loss in the B.C. Supreme Court yesterday, let me see if I can cut right to the heart of your, of your court case here. You, you describe people who are on waiting lists, in many cases in pain, as, the, as they wait for their surgeries. In some cases, you describe people dying on a wait list. You launched a constitutional challenge. Let me, tell me if I got this right, that you're saying that under the Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says that everyone has the right to life, liberty and security the person that that should extend to people who are waiting on a surgery waiting list and therefore you should be able to spend your own money and and get your surgery is that is that the heart of it yes what i'm saying is that if the government is not giving you the health care you need in a timely manner in a free and democratic society you have the right to to leave that forced queue you cannot we, we are essentially in a situation where government is sentencing you to life imprisonment on a waiting list. And one of our patients um, would have suffered, one of our plaintiff patients um, who's sadly died now would have um, suffered that fate um, because she was had terminal cancer and wrecked her knee, uh, but could still, before the, the knee injury, could play golf and walk her dog. Then she was told it was two years to wait. She was also told her life expectancy was two years. This is not, this is not something that should happen in Canada. Okay, the the judge in the case, Justice John Steves of the, of the B.C. Supreme Court, it, it was interesting that in a very lengthy judgment, at one point he says he, he recognizes that for some patients, excessive wait times for elective surgery will cause some harm. That's right in there. But he also concluded that B.C.'s Medicare laws, especially the Medicare Protection Act, is focused on medically necessary care and not the ability to pay. Is that what this comes down to, is that we live in a country where people have public access to public health care based on their need, not their ability to jump the queue and pay for it? Well, it's based on government's ability not to pay. And, and this is essentially the crux of the matter. It's who owns your bodily health? Who decides about your health? Do you have the right to spend money uh, on, on yourself. I mean, the, the hypocrisy, too, that went on in this case, as you, as you know. So I, I can answer that in a, another way. The judge had pri- privately um, delivered surgery at a private clinic um, wow. funded by the government. In, a, in, a, in an article in the Vancouver Sun, uh, William McComish, a 75-year-old, suffering with crushed he says crushing headaches, constant infections, the same diagnosis as the judge was on a two-year wait list. And he said, why isn't the government paying for me? Why is it paying for the judge? And the question is, is what we're saying is that that patient, um, it, it's now decided that the government decides when you get treatment and you have no say in it. And we had other more outlandish hypocrisy in our case. And for example, we have evidence, unrefuted, unchallenged evidence in the lawsuit that the groups opposing us, like groups like the Canadian Doctors for Medicare, the BC Nurses Union, the even outrageously, the Attorney General's Office of British Columbia, the representatives of these bodies have come to to private, gone to private clinics and had private procedures. The defendant, the Attorney General of British Columbia, sends patients to private clinics, but ruled that those patients don't have the. But but 
I mean, they're in violation of their own law in, in, in that sense. But well, um, well, don't don't all those people, all your opponents, also argue that they don't want a two-tier Medicare system in our country, where people who are who are rich and have the ability to pay can go to the front of the of the queue. I mean, doesn't that yeah. get to the heart of the yeah. argument around Medicare in Canada? Yeah, but I mean, the, what you have to do is look at the rest of the world. You know, yeah. we're we're not we 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 are not that different from in terms of our philosophies from the the Swedes, the Norwegians, the Dutch, the Belgians, um, the British, or and the New Zealanders, all of whom have a safety valve. And what the safety valve does is it makes the public system perform better. It's a monopoly that is harmful to the public. So in Britain, only 10% of people have private health insurance. But yeah. at least pre-COVID, the um, access was... Uh, my sister had a hip replacement done in the NHS last year, for, uh, waited seven weeks in the public system. And it would have been three weeks in the private system. In other words, the evidence is that having some competition improves the performance okay. of the public system. Okay, I guess that's what they call the hybrid system, right? Like if if you have if we had a system like that, would you argue that uh, if we have surgical waiting lists in the country now, that if someone on one of those waiting lists had the ability to pay and to get their surgery quickly, does that shorten the waiting list? Does that well, take them out of the queue? Clearly, if there are 65, there are currently about 65,000 patients a year in British Columbia treated in private clinics. If they didn't exist, they would be lumped on top of the existing queues. As a result of the COVID crisis, um, the wait lists are going to magnify by four to seven times. That is from a study from McMaster. And it doesn't matter what the government tries to sell you. That Yes, I, I, I listened to some of the data coming out. Numbers of procedures may be back up, but the backlog and the numbers right. waiting is, is massive. If you, so, so patients are suffering, and as I said, you cannot hide from the fact that by, prior to COVID, since we started our lawsuit, 75,000 Canadians have died on a wait list, on a surgical right. wait list. That's outrageous, and we're the only country on earth in which private access to insurance okay. is illegal. All right, welcome back. My guest is Dr. Brian Day, Canby Surgery Center. He loses in court yesterday in his historic uh, appeal in, in at the B.C. Supreme Court uh, in defense of private private medicine. He says he will appeal. Let's go to some phone calls here. There's lots of them. Randy in Vancouver. Hi, Randy. Yeah, hi there. Um, hi. Yeah, I, I suffer from uh, uh, chronic sinus infections, and, uh, you know, they um, and they spread into my lungs, and, and I get infected there. It totally immobilizes me uh, for uh, you know, uh, over a month, and uh, seems to happen once a year. It cost me about twenty thousand uh, dollars a year in lost uh, employment. Uh, I, why can't I spend uh, six hundred or a thousand dollars to go into a private clinic if I so choose and uh, and get a CT scan? I imagine it probably get it in less than a week. Okay, what do, Dr. Day? What do you say to him? Well, yeah, I mean, the it's it's like the the patient I mentioned and the seventy five year old who had the, the same diagnosis, I I assume, and who was asking why can the government um, decide to send the judge to a private clinic, but it won't send me. Uh, uh, what I mean, it not only will it not send you, it stops you sending yourself. This is 
completely illogical. Well, we have we have circumstances like for if there's a work safe case, for example. So if you're injured at work, you'd potentially go to the front of the queue to a private clinic, right? Yes, and, and yeah. WorkSafe BC is actually the only, um, it's an interesting thing, it's the only um, example in world history of a private system being imposed on an existing public system. Every health system started off as a private system and then public systems developed. But 25 years ago, workers' comp started sending patients to private clinics because it stopped the suffering of the patient, but it also was economically helpful to the to the individual and sure. to the, and to work BC. Yeah, get people back to work. But is and that, there's no is, evidence whatsoever that that's done any harm to the public system. Yeah. In fact, it takes people away from the public hospitals and opens up space in the public hospitals okay. for them. Okay, Rod on the open line in Langley. Hi, Rod. Yeah, I've got a quick question for the doctor, but sure. I also have a comment. So, is this fight provincial or is it federal? And Dr. Day. Well, it's both because the the both governments were in court against us, the federal government and the Canadian government. And I, I can tell you, we have had patients at our clinic from the highest levels of both levels of government, like I mean highest levels. And um, and so it's against both. It's a, it's a charter challenge, but it's a challenge of the BC legislation. It's the BC legislation yeah. that we're challenging under the charter uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Good. Okay, Roddy wanted to say something else. So have you done anything to, to somehow get people on your side? I mean, at change.org or something where you can go, I mean, I can't imagine most people would say no, and the option is if they don't, if they can't afford it, they still have public. If they can afford it, they have private. It's an option. I think people want options. They're tired of people like ICBC ripping us off. They are tired of this sort of thing. But I think the public okay. is going to have to speak for you. Okay, Brian Day. Yeah, well, I think ICBC is also an example of a monopoly. But but you're you're right that that this is this is a human rights thing. And again, to say why should non-residents have rights in BC that you and I don't have? I don't get that. I just don't get that. And 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 th- again, the only jurisdiction in the world that has yeah. outlaws private this option is in, uh, are in Canada. The only jurisdictions okay. are in Canada. Suzanne in North Van. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much. I feel very strongly about this. I'm originally from New Zealand. I have many, well, a few cousins there, and I have spent time there. Their system is a nightmare, and Canadians should be so grateful for our system. I am so happy with the result of this. I'll give you an example. I was at a family um, dinner with a cousin who's a lawyer. He showed me a, a, a scar in his throat. He said, I paid 30000 to jump to the head of line to have this surgery. Then he went on. He pays 1500 a month for his health insurance. I have another cousin who's retired, middle income. He and his wife have to pay 1200 a month for private health insurance. For some reason, it didn't used to be this way, but for some reason now with the private system in, the public, the quality of care in the public is way lower than it is in the private. Okay, um, okay Suzanne, thank bo- you, thank you for calling. The bottom line on this is yeah. if you have two children who have cancer, one is from a wealthy family, one is not, is it okay with you that the child from the wealthy family gets treatment ahead of the poorer one. Okay, Brian Day, we've got one minute left. Yeah, well, obviously the answer there is that's the public system that's failing to treat the ca- cancer patient, and that doesn't address the fact that in the last 11 years, 75,000 Canadians have died on a waiting list. Wait, that does not happen in New Zealand. It does not happen in any other country on Earth. 
Okay, Brian Day, thank you for coming on. There are tons more calls. Um, we'll have to have you back if you, okay, you come back and take more calls. But thank you for coming on today. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That's Dr. Brian Day, Canby Surgery Center. All right. Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Imagine going away for a short vacation and then returning home to a nightmare. Your home has been broken into while you were away. Squatters have been living in your house and your home and your belongings have been trashed. Talk about a violation of your home, your personal security. What a terrible ordeal to go through. My next guest, sadly, is go- has gone through exactly that experience, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show, Allison Greenway from Nanaimo. She's a-, a mom who has gone through this experience with her family. Allison, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I I appreciate it a lot, and I, w- I want to tell you first of all, I, I've I've seen some of the television news coverage of of this ordeal that you and your family have gone through, and I I know this has been a traumatic thing for you. Uh, you have my my deepest sympathies and support here as you go through this experience, and I know it's been difficult for you. So I'm very grateful to you for agreeing to come on and, and talk about it. So let me just say yeah. that to you off the bat. Um, I appreciate that so much. You bet, Allison. I know you're getting a lot of support. So, so can you tell me briefly how what happened? How did this happen to you? What what went down here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so every year we take our kids north. My my husband, he's Tolten and Casca, so we make sure to get them back to their homelands just to you know stay grounded. Um, and our our trip this year was a little bit longer just because of distancing, right? You don't want to see at-risk family members if you haven't properly taken the time to make sure you're healthy first. Right. Um, it was amazing. <laughs> Our daughter caught her first fish. It was, it was a good visit. Um, but we got home, and uh, somebody else had moved in. It was oh, it's awful. Um, I didn't think it could get worse <laughs> on that first day, and I was wrong, um, unfortunately. I know this has been a terrible experience for you, uh, and, and I know it's traumatic for you to talk about it. So, what was it? But what was it like when you got when you got to your home? What did you find? Oh, nothing. Nothing was where we had left it. He had boarded up all the windows and used our kids' toys throughout the yard and in the house. It was. So strange, and it was so scary. So we we didn't even get up the driveway. We called the RCMP as soon as we saw that things were not where we had left it. Right, and there was no one in the house, though, right? Like the house was kind of trashed, but there was nobody yeah. there. No, yeah, he had he had made himself at home and and destroyed our things, but at least he wasn't in the house. Like they did a full sweep, they collected the evidence, they told us it would be okay to start cleaning. Um, so that's when I posted on Facebook, just, just asking for some extra hands to help get the mess out. Yeah. Okay. So I, I know you've received a lot of help now. Uh, the terrible twist to this is the, the guy came, he came back at one point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how'd mm-hmm. that happen? We were here all day cleaning, getting things out. He was like 10 years of our lives that he had ruined. Um, and, and so we finished around four to drop off the U-Haul, get our kids a late lunch, right? Yeah. My husband, um, we couldn't get the security installed right away. So he was coming by every night before we checked in at the hotel just to make sure that things were, were still okay. Um, he came by that night and this man had already boarded himself back up in our house. Oh. 
Like oh, we were just oh, there. We were cleaning all day. You know that we're home and, and you still... Oh, oh my God. So sorry. <laughs> I, I know I know it's difficult. So you and your family had moved into a hotel. Yeah, then, actually, yeah. we we weren't planning on it. Like, I hadn't seen the inside of the house when I called my friend initially. I thought, I thought it was something we could fix with a few hours and some bleach, and it was it was a lot worse than that. So they, they encouraged us to stay in a hotel. They covered it for, like, three nights just so we had time to clean, and thank God that they did. Otherwise, my family would have been home. And, uh, God. Okay. Okay. Thank I, you. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, I listen. I un- I understand how traumatic this has been for you now. So so when you got back and the guy had returned, he barricaded himself in the house. So the the police came and uh, did they come and arrest him? Immediately. It was yeah. it was incredible. The response was so fast. Um. They they had to use the police dogs. Bless those bless those dogs. They do good jobs. Um, they were able to get him out of our house within an hour and a half, I believe. But I don't know. It was so stressful. <laughs> so was this guy, was he like lose, using drugs in the house? Is that what the situation? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it wasn't yeah. It wasn't safe at all to bring the kids back inside. And they had to pull him out of their closet. And, oh. Like, that's just that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know you've received an, an outpouring of support from uh, people in the community, people in Nanaimo. Um, it's been incredible. Yeah. What 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 can you say about that? I mean, at least I know this has been a traumatic situation, but does it does it help a little bit that you're getting so much support? Absolutely. I I have cried more because I am grateful than because I am scared, which is which is such a relief right now. The the community has been. So supportive. Um, the kids' elementary school, the principal and two of the teachers came down to help us wash the walls and make sure there were no sharks in the space. The Tilikum Lellum is where our boys go for preschool and they covered all the dump seats and they brought us groceries and even local contracting companies, just people we've never even met are dropping off cleaning supplies and, and a TV so the babies could watch their movies. It's been it's been wild. That's that's really great to hear. I'm speaking to Allison Greenway from Nanaimo. She's the uh, resident there who came home and found that a squatter had taken over her home. Um, the the situation. What what do you think government or anybody could do to prevent something like this from happening in in the future? Like I know in Nanaimo, like a lot of communities around British Columbia is going through some. Stuff with uh, drug addiction and mental illness and homeless homelessness. Do you think do you think authorities need to do a better job on on responding to a situation like that so we don't have more people having their homes broken into like this? That's a good question, and I'm you know I don't feel like I'm knowledgeable enough on on yeah. the impact of crime and, and homelessness and addiction because I know they all go hand in hand, right? Yeah. Um, but the. Like, this was horrific, and it was traumatic, and it was awful, but one bad man does not make it a bad community or a bad neighborhood. I I think that, you know, the kindness of others is, is getting center stage, and that's where it should be. But the RCMP response was swift. It was where it needed to be. They took care of what they needed to do. I just I think we should do more for people who don't have the support and the love that we do so that they don't make these choices. Right. 
Allison, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you very much. You've been very brave in uh, speaking out in your experience. And uh, I can just hear in your voice how traumatic it's been. I wish you all the best to you and your family as you get through this. Thanks for coming on, okay? Thank you. You've been so kind. All right. Thank you, Allison. Bye. Bye-bye.